This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And today we are delighted to be joined by the illustrious and award-winning author Roger W. Burdett, who is probably best known for his three-part series of award-winning books on the Renaissance of American coinage. We are also going to explore a beautiful ancient coin with a stellar price, a stunning price, and explore the usual byways and highways of numismatics, as we always do. And if you enjoy that exploration, and if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, please remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. So, Jeff, you mentioned uh, an ancient coin with a stunning price. Tell the listeners a little bit about this record-breaking sale. On October 29th, there was an auction in London, Roman numismatics. What was the item for sale? It was one of three known gold examples. So three known, and it's the finest of, of those known, I believe. It certainly is the only one available publicly as the other two are in archives of museums. What are we talking about? We're talking about the gold version of the Eidmar, E-I-D-M-A-R, Eidmar coin. This is the uh, Arius. The Arius is the gold denomination. The coin type or design is known probably more so in silver. The silver is a denarius. The denomination is called the denarius. And the silver denarius is on the cover of the 100 Greatest Ancient Coins because it has ranked as the best ancient coin of all time. And this is a coin of lore and fable and beauty and intrigue and history. What makes it so special? The iconography of the design, the circumstances surrounding the minting. It is one of these coins that would be the pinnacle in silver of any ancient coin collection, even rough uh, or worn examples are quarter of a million dollar coins. In the case of this gold version that sold uh, at the end of October, it realized almost $4.2 million US, $4,188,393. That is a record price for an ancient coin. It's just a, a great story. The Ides of March, you know, you're probably familiar with the A2 Brutus and beware the Ides of March and all that. Well, you know, it wasn't only Brutus who assassinated Julius Caesar, but that's the origin of this story. So 30 senators conspired to commit the murder. Caesar was stabbed 23 times. When was this? This was in 44 BC. The coin was actually struck a couple years later by Caesar's successor. And what's interesting is the way this 
coin came to be, Junius Brutius and Cassius Longinus led the charge in the Senate to topple Caesar, who had been proclaimed dictator for life and you know ruled with absolute authority. Three months before he was assassinated, Caesar put his own image on Roman coinage. This just upended tradition. This just never should have happened. The people were aghast. This was such a violation of decorum and norms. Never before had a living ruler's portrait appeared on Roman coinage. Well, fast forward a little bit, and the coin of Brutus, the Ides of March coin, the Edmar coin, it has Brutus on the coin, which was one of the reasons that Caesar was under attack and people went after him and he was assassinated was this daring do of this and, and this how dare he put his own image on the coin. And a couple years later, then Brutus did the same. So it's quite a marvelous story. It's one of these just iconic pieces and to have the only available gold version sell at auction, it was uh, encapsulated by Numismatic Guarantee Corp with a five out of five strike. It's a, a very nice piece. And, you know, you're not going to be able to get one otherwise. Of course, most people listening aren't going to be able to afford one, period. You know, I don't know about you, but the only millions of dollars I have are Zimbabwe money. And um, <laughs> that's not going to work at the auction house. But um, it's one of those things that's been in the news in the last couple of weeks and um, it jumped out at you. So that's why you said, let's talk about it. Yeah. It jumped out at me. Your story on the cover of the November 23rd edition of Coin World is I'd heard about the sale because people in numismatic Facebook groups and social media groups had been posting quite a bit about it. I've friends who collect ancient coins who were following the sale and who were interested. And honestly, and the price is, is remarkable. That very famous story that you just told combined with its artistic beauty and remarkable grade, the coin brought in 3,240,000 pounds, which is $4,188,393 per your article. And that is the record price for any ancient coin ever sold. So I feel like the numismatic world is always a buzz when, you know, some huge record like that is broken. And I thought that listeners might be interested not only in hearing the history of the coin, but learning how much such a rare and sought after ancient coin uh, would sell for. Yeah. So we can provide a link to the story in the show notes. The uh, the great design yep. has the pair of daggers and the Pileus cap on the one side with Edmar, of course, Latin for Ides of March, the day of the assassination. It's just a stellar piece. And, um, you know, check it out. I always try to, in my general coverage, so like I, I wrote about a medal here last week, and it's, you know, it's a $500 medal. And so not everybody can afford that, but a lot of people can, right? I mean, certainly if you're, if you're, you want to save up for a little while and $500, I don't think for many collectors is a stretch. Certainly for some it is, I recognize. That's an attainable thing. This is an aspirational thing. And it's okay that we talk about aspirational items from time to time, certainly when they make news like this uh, of setting a record price. I try not to dwell on that space though of of getting awed by the dollar signs and, you know, the, you know, auction houses will send us information about sales and want to fixate on and promote the top rarities. At a certain level, I understand that, you know, their job is to sell the coin for the most money and get the most money for their consigner. And, you know, consequently, the greater 
a coin sells for, the greater their commission or the buyer's fee, which the auction firm, that's how they live. And, you know, it's it's a lot of work to image the coins and, and research them and create the catalog, mail the catalog, all that. I, I get that. They serve a function. No worries. That's part of the ecosystem. But, you know, it goes back to a core tenant that Chris and I have that this is a hobby for everybody and this is a big tent hobby. And so we'll talk about those when appropriate, but we're going to talk about some other things because not everybody is at that level. I just try to offer appetizers, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whet your appetite, get you excited, point you in the right direction if you want to know more to go explore something further. And that's what this is. Yeah, and it can be enjoyable to salivate over truly spectacular rarities, even if you'll never own them. I mean, the yes. fact that these things exist and that someone owns them and hopefully makes them available for public viewing or, or at least makes research about them available for public consumption, that can help contribute to numismatic knowledge. And on top of that, there are some coins whose historical value is such that even if regular collectors can ever afford them, just knowing about them can help people, you know, learn famous stories in numismatics. So if, if you're at a show and someone mentions the Eidmar coin or makes a reference to Eidmar, you'll know what coin they're talking about. And the record was just set. And that is absolutely a, um, a newsworthy event. So yeah. anyway, so Jeff, thanks thanks for covering that. Sure. We'll uh, we'll put your coverage down in the show notes so that the uh, the listeners can enjoy it. And yeah. but I, I think you're right though. It's um anytime you can create a conversation about numismatics to some, with somebody that is not in tune with the hobby, you have the chance to spread the hobby. And so as you know, you being more conversant in, in these topics, you can then introduce the hobby to those folks uh, and maybe get them excited and interested. And, and, you know, you never know who does have the means to go, you know, buy a, a silver denarius, um, I'd mark coin, or maybe they just say, Hey, I, I love ancient coins now because you told me of this history and there's other history out there. Let me go pursue it. And gosh, we know that ancient coins can start at five to $10 uh, on up to, you know, $4 million. So quite a range there. So we spent some time dwelling in the ancient numismatic past. Jeff, what was happening in the slightly more recent numismatic past this week in history? So we are going to go to November 24th, what happened on that date and what year? What's the year? Well, 1971. This is another one where we're nibbling around the edges of is it really numismatic, but there is a connection. What happened on November 24th, 1971? A man with the alias or name of D.B. Cooper parachutes from a jet aircraft with $200,000 ransom. This is in the Pacific Northwest. This is a case that really intrigues folks to this day. There have been uh, recent forays into the case on some different television network channel type things. I don't know if it's like A&E or History Channel, one of those deals. I know you can go on eBay and you can buy the FBI files of the Cooper case. You can find photos of them out there. I mean, there's just some really neat connections. Well, the connection numismatically here is $200,000 ransom. Well, what does that mean? Or what? why does that matter? Well, what happens is in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, a bunch of the money that was used in the ransom was located in the Pacific Northwest. It was encapsulated by a third-party grading service. 
and entered the market. You know, they were able to check the list of notes that were used as ransom, and they were able to confirm that these notes were part of that payoff. And while history tells us that we don't know the real name and the real persona behind Cooper. Those notes are tangible connections to that event and good luck finding one in the marketplace. A couple of years ago, we don't know, certainly somebody knows, but but we don't know who this person is or outfit is, this company or whatever, but apparently uh, paper money dealers can tell you that there's been somebody cornering the market on Cooper money, DB Cooper ransom notes, and buying them up whenever they become available. So if you're at a local show and you see one and you have the means, by gosh, you might want to pull the trigger because these things just aren't in the market right now. And there's so many folks who want one that is going to drive demand up. That's going to drive the price up. That's again, that's a story piece, just like the Ides of March coin. This is money related to a famous event in history, just like you can find money that people had with them in the Titanic wreck and they survived and this was in their pockets. And some cases there's folks who didn't survive that the money was found and that came on the market too. I mean, it's, you know, but to have this object that has this direct link is really cool. And that's the thing that gets people excited. I know there's money that was on the Andrea Doria wreck, paper money that you, that's you that been encapsulated. So that's just another item in that vein. You know, that's why it jumped out at me in looking at the possibilities for this week in history. Oh, that's fascinating. And more than 1,900 years might separate those stories, but they absolutely are worth telling and worth sharing. And I hope and I'm sure that the listeners you know, enjoyed hearing those anecdotes. Truthfully, I'll say I do find the Titanic shipwreck salvage coins, I do find those just a little bit morbid. I mean, I don't know. It's Well, if somebody if survived, if somebody survived and had oh, the yeah, money the, on them. The, no, 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 no. I, I, I mean the pieces that they take off the wreck. Yeah. The, I don't know. That strikes me as, I mean, look, I find shipwreck coinage fascinating. I have a couple of pieces from the El Cazador in my own collection. Sure. I mean, the, the El Cazador wreck. I mean, there are some but, absolutely fascinating But, but how pieces. do you, you know, the, those wrecks had very tangible cost of human lives. And so how is that any different? You know, Jeff, that's a great point. You know, maybe shipwreck coins are shipwreck coins. And anyone who is uncomfortable with one perhaps should be uncomfortable with all of them. That's a fair, you know. I mean, just think Ab- about it. You know, that, that's dwell in that thought. You, you know, you're not you're not right, and I'm not wrong, or I'm not right, and you're not wrong. It's just it just is. But certainly, I have some of those pieces as well, Cazador. So I mean, it's yeah. it's something again. It's a story piece. Hey, look, this was recovered from the bottom of the ocean, and you know, it was there X number hundred years, whatever. And that's the thing that gets people excited. And I think Brad Karloff talked about that in the interview we had with him recently. There's a thread here <laughs> through these these recent pieces. <laughs> well, Jeff, those are absolutely fascinating numismatic stories. Now, I'm curious, what numismatic stories was the talented staff at CoinWorld telling in? 2007 for the edition of CoinWorld that we're looking at. So we're looking at the November 26, 2007 edition of CoinWorld. Why that issue? Well, 2007 was the year that our interview subject, Roger Burdett, won the Numismatic Literary Guild Award for um, Book of the Year for his first volume in the trilogy of Renaissance of American Coinage. That was also the publication year for the second book, I believe, in the trilogy. So uh, we go to that cover. And we have two stories that really sort of 
parallel modern times. The headline at the top was not quite a rerun of 1979. Gold market active, but not frenzied. So at the time, gold was uh, approaching record highs. We certainly know now that we've had this year uh, record highs in fixed dollar rates, not when you index for inflation, but a fixed dollar rate. We've had a high this year and you know, gold is in economic troubling times as this year has been. You know, gold is a safe haven and an asset and people flock to it. The second story on the cover was, and again, it resonates very interestingly with this year, a Fed able to meet nation's coinage needs. Officials claim no cent surplus exist. So, you know, in a year when the coin shortage, the toilet paper shortage, shortage of sanity, shortage of compassion, all of these things have been in short supply this year. Well, that was not the case at least in with coinage 13 years ago. Paul Joke's story says a top Federal Reserve official said November 8th that the Fed has had no problem in, in meeting the nation's needs for coinage, including the cent. This was a uh, testimony before a House subcommittee. There was talk at the time. There was a U.S. representative in Ohio by the name of Zach Space who was trying to get Congress to allow for cent coins to be melted. Why was he doing that? Well, a company in his district had the mechanisms and machinery that would allow them to mass melt copper cents. And as an astute observer and collector would know, cents that are made of copper are worth like basically twice their face value, if not more these days. And so this company wanted to basically make money by melting money. The efforts ultimately went nowhere. It is still illegal to melt U.S. cents and a coinage period, actually. It is not, however, illegal to like put them in an elongated scent form through the machines because for whatever reason, that's not intent to be a scam. And I, I should probably look into that further. Why one is okay and one is not, but you know, you're obviously, when you elongate it, you're paying to imprint this design on it and it's turning the object into a collectible it's still existing in its solid form. It's not being removed from the coinage supply to the degree that something would be if they were if there was mass melting. So that was what was happening. That's what caught my eye and was in the news. So now it's time for the favorite portion of the show for you. We're going to talk about your favorite letters. We're going to be looking at the letters to the editor page of the November 26, 2007 edition of CoinWorld. There are three letters that have jumped out at me. Two of them are on the shorter side. And the two that are on the shorter side actually serve as interesting foils to each other in terms of their tone and, and the point that they're trying to make. And then the third, I thought, tied in nicely with our interview a couple of weeks ago with Dave Norris. So the first letter, though, is entitled Do Not Give Up. And it reads... There have been some letters to the editor lately from collectors who are not treated fairly by dealers at shows or on eBay. Don't give up! Exclamation point. I am a collector and a dealer. I will teach anyone that comes to my table or to my office or who emails me. I also teach coin collecting classes. I've been in the hobby for 10 years and a dealer for one year, and I have higher sales than most dealers at small shows. Why? Fair prices and lots of information and advice. So let me say again, do not give up. Numismatics is the best hobby on earth, and there are many good dealers willing to help. Happy collecting! 
And that's from Daniel Sheffer of Daniel's Coins and Currency LLC from Shelby Township, Michigan. And this stood out to me for two reasons. One, he says happy collecting at the end, which is uh, the little catchphrase that we have at the end of every one of our shows. So that kind of I thought that was kind of fun. And huh. funny. He stole it from us. Well, yeah, I mean, that or we didn't know that he wrote it 13 years ago. So um, so anyway, so I thought that was interesting. And then on top of that, it the message of this letter is one that we shared on the podcast a number of times. We're all on a collecting journey. We're all growing, evolving and improving. And, you know, the best dealers and professionals and experienced hobbyists will help those with less experience along, hopefully, and those willing to share their knowledge and their uh, love of the hobby. And that's really, really important. And so I thought another letter making that point was uh, would be valuable for you all to hear. The second letter reads, Dealers Need Collectors. And it reads, It's a sad day when a chairman of a numismatic organization, letter by Paul Paget, Coin World November 12th, he's responding to a previous letter. And it reads, When a chairman of a numismatic organization, letter by Paul Paget, in the, the November 12th Coin World edition, has the nerve to tell the world that he and the rest of the coin community don't need collectors who are just trying to enjoy the hobby. I've learned in my years of collecting that there are two kinds of collections. The first kind is the collection that is made for fun of the hobby. The second kind is the collection for investment and profit. The coin hobby, I'm sad to say, has turned into nothing more than an industry to make money. I don't blame small dealers. Why should they talk to us, the small-time collectors, when they have large corporations buying the entire lot of coins they're selling? But everyone should remember that without the collector, the largest corporations will have no one to sell to. And if that happens, then the smaller dealers will not be able to sell to the big guys. If Paul Paget keeps up the bad attitude that dealers don't need us, I feel his exposition hall will be empty soon. As with any product, enough bad press will eventually affect the bottom line. Dinosaurs were around for a long time too, and now look at them. So in closing, I say, get ready for extinction. And that's from um, Paul Vastorelli of East Haven, Connecticut. That letter stood out to me like the first one for a couple of reasons. The first is I found his the line that he drew between quote unquote fun collections and investment collections interesting. And I do think that there is some truth to it. There are people who buy and sell coins to make money or they want to, you know, have Boolean coins as part of an investment portfolio or they want to buy and sell graded coins that, you know, people will look at the gray sheet for the wholesale price and then try and sell for the retail price. There are dealers who are trying to make money and whether they're helping people put together investment collections or quote unquote fun collections, they need to make money. They need to eat like anyone else. And I do think that there is some value in differentiating between those two kinds of collections. And I thought that his letter served as an interesting, like I said, at the top of the segment, an interesting foil to the first letter in the sense that Daniel Sheffer, the author of the first letter, is encouraging dealers to help inexperienced hobbyists and to help, you know, guide people along. And Paul Vastorelli is basically saying that some dealers, in his estimation, are failing to do that. So I thought that those two letters offered different perspectives on a similar issue. The final letter is entitled Refreshing Break, and it reads, With all the recent unsettling news of American Numismatic Association dismissals, museum plan terminations, and past executive board upheavals, it was truly refreshing to read Cindy Brake's November 5th in-depth article concerning investing in our youth as next-generation numismatists. Ms. Brake's vivid snapshots of three outstanding teenagers and their introduction to and experiences with coin collecting and the mentors in their lives made compelling reading. Seeing what triggers today's youngsters to get turned on to collecting brings back happy memories of my growing interests over the years and also spurs me on to get further involved with the youth movement relating to coins. The future of our wonderful hobby rests with the active involvement of the younger generation. After all, we're not getting any younger as evidenced by the increasing number of balding, gray-haired attendees observed these days at any major coin show. 
Thank God for the recent upsurge of young numismatist organizations and the cadre of veteran collectors stepping in and offering encouragement to these leaders of tomorrow. Super article. And it was written by Dave Sperry from Los Altos, California. As most listeners could probably put together, I picked this out because it not only connects to the message of the two previous letters, but it also expounds on a message that we try to send here, which is not only that dealers and, and hobby professionals should try to nurture young collectors and sort of try to plant the seeds of that interest. As our interview with Dave Norris shows, there are a lot of different people going about it in different ways and how important that is. I also found youth movement relating to coins interesting. I would love to start a youth movement <laughs> relating to coins. I, just, I found that phrasing interesting. The message that he's sending with this letter is a message that is as important today as it was 13 years ago. And it's a message that we try to share on the podcast. And that's trying to get both a younger and broader audience engaged with coin collecting and to bring a wider variety of folks into the hobby is really, really important. So I thought that the letter very eloquently made that case. Yeah, so those were the letters that jumped out at me this week, Jeff. Awesome. Now that I'm done reading letters and we're done reading a 2007 edition of Coin World, Jeff, what have you been reading? What numismatic literature have you been consuming? So it's funny, you know, you ask me this every week and as if I'm just sitting there with a snifter of brandy and a cigar and, you know, delving into the latest <laughs> tome. Um, we should all be so lucky. We should, uh, although I would... Um, the only, the only brandy I like, never mind. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not much of a drinking man. Uh, anyway, so um, I, I want to refer to something that because I have this book and because I have looked at it, I was able to answer a question yesterday at a coin shop. As we're recording this, I was at a coin shop yesterday afternoon and the owner there, it's a very small you know, a very small place, not a, uh, they do lots of sports memorabilia and other stuff. It's in comic books and, but he does coins. He sets up at the local coin show in Shelby County, home of coin world. And he said, well, I think this is silver, but I don't know. I, you know, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't sound like it. And I said, well, yeah, that is, but it's 900 fine silver, you know, which you don't think of a, a metal generally being 900 fine silver, you expect maybe 925 sterling silver, especially if it's of British origin, because that's where sterling silver sort of, you know, is used a lot. Or maybe you, you would think of three nines fine, and this piece was not marked. But I knew right away, I saw it and recognized the design on the piece. It was a, um, for the state of West Virginia's, I don't know, sesquicentennial or bicentennial, but it's of a class of pieces it was struck by the U.S. Mint, West Virginia Statehood Centennial. That's what it is. It's called a National Commemorative Medal. And I have this slim little book called National Commemorative Medals of the United States Mint, an illustrated catalog, first edition by John T. Dean. This came out in 2008. There is apparently a newer edition. I have not bought it, but this is like a $20, $25 book. It's a nice little handy guide to medals that were authorized by Congress that were struck at the U.S. Mint and then sold in, in various places. In this particular instance, this was a 1963 medal, and there were 6,000 of these 900 fine silver pieces made. They're 19.7 grams, so if you do the math, that's about 17.8 grams of actual silver, so it's a little more than a half ounce 
but uh, you know I recognized it because I've seen this book and uh, and seen it in the book and I've seen the medal before at you know like the ICOTAM show the Illinois Kentucky Ohio Tokens and Metal Society show uh, and other places the Dean book that I have is a much more condensed version of a much more elaborate book on the same topic by William Swoger, S-W-O-G-E-R. And unfortunately, I don't have the Swoger book. It's a $200 book, but the Dean book is a nice basic beginner's guide. And because of that, like I said, I was able to say, yeah, no, this is exactly what it is. You have a silver piece. It's 900 fine. That's why it doesn't sound like you think or feel like or look like what you might think, but that's what it is. This is where it was struck. And the dealer said, okay, you know, I'll put it out at such and such a price. I did not buy it because I'm not from West Virginia. It's, it's not a, to me, a particularly compelling design, but that speaks to the knowledge is value knowing something you can you know you can make money or certainly find bargains and if i wanted to be unscrupulous i could have said yeah that's uh you know just some nickel metal throw it in your quarter metals and tokens bin and i'll, I'll buy it but you know i wasn't going to do that that wasn't um that wasn't right and um so he was able to put it out and, and put it in his show case for sale Oh, well, that's fascinating. So now that I've bored you with that little bit of trivia, I think it's time for me to get a trivia answer from you and ask another. I believe that it is. So remind the listeners of what the question was from last week. And more importantly, you, right? Because you, you probably <laughs> yeah, don't remember right? either. So <laughs> I don't. <laughs> last, be, because of our discussion with Dave Norris, we were talking about numismatic knowledge and you know how there's so much to know about the hobby. And this was a question that could trip people up early on and the question novice level question coin rule trivia game at what mints were 1975 kennedy half dollars struck 1975 correct would that just be uh philadelphia and san francisco uh, no so as i warned you this could trip somebody up well i am vividly illustrating that truth so the reality is there were none no mints struck 1975 dated Kennedy half dollars, right? I did not know that off the top of my head. Because so. they were making 1976 dated coinage. Right, for, for, for the bicentennial, Correct. with the bicentennial designs. Correct. Oh, well, you know what? That would easily trip someone up, and it certainly tripped me up. Yes. So take that lesson with you, podcast listeners. <laughs> so this one, I don't, even though it's a novice level question, I don't expect you to know it. I did not know it. This dovetails nicely because of our discussion with Roger Burdett, and we talked about the renaissance of coinage, and one of the artists behind that renaissance was Augusta St. Gaudens. So what was Augusta St. Gaudens' first contact with the U.S. Mint and that contact came in 1891. Why did he interact with the Mint in 1891? What was that for? We will have the answer next week when we have the second part of this interview. But for now, here's the first part of the interview. And uh, maybe, maybe he even talks about the answer in the interview. You'll just have to listen super extra hard to find out. Here it is. Jeff and I are delighted today to be joined by Roger Burdett, author of the three-part Renaissance of American Coinage and United States Pattern and Experimental Pieces of World War II. Thanks so much for joining us, Roger. You're welcome. Glad to be here. We've talked about briefly about the Renaissance of American Coinage on the podcast before, and when most people hear that term or that name, they think of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, 
and Augusta St. Gaudens. But who are some of the other major decision makers, political or otherwise, or involved in mint bureaucracy, and artists who contributed to the change, to America's change? Well, the, the political people were really um, promoted mostly by Roosevelt because he's the one who had the executive authority to get something done without having to ask too many questions. Prior to 1905, there had been multiple attempts to revise the coinage, to make changes that were felt to be necessary for a long time. Mint Director Linderman attempted to make these changes on several occasions in the 1870s. And in fact, the uh, reason for bringing George Morgan over here from uh, England was to redesign the U.S. coinage with a typically uh, ideal figure, ideal head of liberty, and uh, other devices that would be used on the subsidiary silver coins, and a new set of designs for the gold. But that didn't work, of course. Linderman died in early 1879. And the follow-up attempts by uh, contests and uh, other things just failed because there was no real political support for it. And the Mint at that time was more concerned with getting out coinage than in making any changes. In Roosevelt's time, he was the main instigator. And I guess the one following him who had the most influence was probably Franklin McVeigh the Secretary of Treasury, who uh, was around and responsible much for the Buffalo Nickel. Um, he was the one who selected uh, Fraser, then worked with Fraser for several years, actually, to get the Buffalo Nickel design perfected. Fraser made a number of nickel-sized electrotypes of little plaster sketches that he then showed to McVeigh, and the secretary then made suggestions, and they went back and forth from 1911, actually, into 19, mid-1912. The Buffalo Nickel design was actually finished and uh, essentially approved in August 1912. If it wasn't for the Hobbs Manufacturing Company objecting, it actually would have been produced beginning probably September 1912. Beyond that, you get the influence of the group known as the Commission of Fine Arts, which was actually started by Roosevelt and then formally disbanded and restarted by President Taft. And they were given the authority really to pass judgment on architectural and coinage and metal designs of a national character. And so they were the ones who really then pushed subsequent coinage change designs up into the 1940s, actually. So they approved the commemorative coins. They approved the peace dollar. They were the ones who actually got the peace dollar competition organized and implemented and the designs to Secretary of Treasury and the President for uh, approval. So they were the main players in there. The artists, of course, were the ones we know primarily from other coins designs. And they included folks who submitted designs but never had anything accepted. Uh, and those are the same group of people you see in the 1900 to 1925 or so era that were the patriots, so to speak, of Fraser. 
nearly all of them worked in New York. Their purpose was really to increase the artistic appearance of American coinage within the limitation that the law had. And most of them succeeded to one degree or another. Probably Fraser was the one who was most successful. His Buffalo Nickel is still recognized around the world as an American coin, whereas most of the others are just some kind of foreign coin. The one who was least successful is probably Herman McNeil, primarily because his full-length design is just too small for the quarter, and it's poorly organized or oriented based on the reverse. The uh, highest part of the upper part of the obverse comes directly opposite the highest part of the reverse. And so you rarely get a full, clean design strike all the way through the obverse. And the reverse feathers are not well brought up either. Uh, it was a design that did not strike up well, and Treasury was quite happy to get rid of it in 1931. Does that help to explain why Standing Liberty Quarters are often found without the full head and why the full head designation indicating a strong strike is fairly rare for those coins, or at least is a determinant of value? I think so. The full head moniker is not really a determination or an indication of a well-struck coin. It's simply one that says in that part of the coin, you can see more detail. You have to look at everything on the obverse, including the toes, the um, shield, the rivets or stars on the shield, the internal design to the shield, uh, the head, even the uh, Liberty's right hand extending out with the olive branch. And those are extremely hard to find, much rarer than so-called full head pieces, because getting all of those things to work on a tiny planchet with the complicated design was just a group of coincidences that had to occur together. It seems though that your example here shows that the artistic concerns were supreme though over the technical challenges, that art was always the driving force for these new designs as opposed to whether it struck well. Is that a is that a fair characterization? Does that only work for the Standing Liberty Quarter? I think that applies to the whole group from 1905 through 1921. Incidentally, would include the Panama Pacific commemoratives. They all fall in a period when there was, you might call it a, a national awakening to the image of America. What this country showed to the rest of the world and this was an important political consideration for Roosevelt and most of his successors up until the end of the um, early 1920s. And you end up with designs where, because none of the artists were technically proficient in coinage, they produced designs that they felt were artistically suitable and professional. Um, which often didn't mesh with what the mid engraving department felt was suitable. So all of them, as you said, were more likely organized toward the artistic expression rather than technical means. And then it was up to the mint engravers to figure out how to translate this into 
something that would coin with one blow of the press and produce a good looking coin. And it's not that they were working in opposites. It's simply that they were working in differences. Artistic creation is not the same as the technical creation that was necessary to strike a coin. And all of them, I think, really understood that. It was just that they had trouble communicating, in part because there was this interface layer between the mint engravers and the artists, which usually was the mint director's office, or sometimes the secretary of treasury. And when you have things that have to go through multiple iterations, you end up with the real meaning sometimes becoming obscured. So we have Fraser essentially completing his design in, to the approval of the Secretary of Treasury in August 1912, yet the Secretary also essentially interfering and saying, well, we have to make some changes to accommodate Mr. Hobbs and his objections as far as automated coin device security. And you run across something similar all the way through and actually into the commemorative half dollar era where the same kinds of things occurred. So it was not so much personality of Charles Barber or George Morgan versus personalities of St. Gaudens, Fraser and Aiken and the others, but it was a matter of they were doing different things and they weren't really allowed to communicate directly. So St. Gaudens, for example, hardly ever got to communicate in any way with Charles Barber. About the only time was when they were on the commission to try to find new coin designs in 1890. And then the, uh, to a very little limited extent, the um, Columbian Exposition Medal confusion. But even there, you didn't have the two talking to each other. And you always had other people in the middle. So you never got a clean translation between the artist and the technical implementation of what was needed. So the coins always came out a little less than expected and harder to make than they should have been. But despite those challenges, those designs and those coins are remembered as some of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful coins that America ever produced. I'm curious, you mentioned a political awakening to the importance of America's image. And it seems like President Roosevelt was sort of stirred by this awakening, or he was part of this awakening. What exactly were the designs trying to communicate about America? What political message were the designs trying to send? I think all of them, with the exception of the Lincoln Cent, were trying to project America as a new leader in the world. Our economic stability, our geographic dimensions, our idea from the 1890s of manifest destiny was all part of the political ethos of that era up until um, President Wilson was left office. And Roosevelt was a great proponent of that. Much of what he did in his political career was promotional of America and the American, both the American dream of equality and opportunity for everyone, his square deal kind of approach. 
and the idea that there was nothing Americans couldn't do when they wanted to do it, which is where the Panama Canal came from. And Roosevelt basically said, you're going to build the canal. Just like Jack Kennedy said, we're going to land on the moon. Those are huge aspirations. And the canal was especially important because it was ringed with failures for generations of failures. And Roosevelt was the starter of that. And to some extent, all of the others that followed in that Renaissance period built on what he had started by looking for forward-looking modern designs. The peace dollar is an example of a somewhat modern interpretation of St. Gaudens 1896 Nike Irani portrait bust, which actually came from the German monument. So it was a little lighter, a younger, less stuffy. The uh, so-called Grecian nose was gone, and it looked like a real personification of liberty rather than some idealistic something that had been copied from an ancient Greek statue. I was curious to um, hear you mention the Commission of Fine Arts, because certainly that's one of the two commissions or committees that are involved today in coinage design, the other being the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. Is there hope for modern coin design that comes out of a committee process like this when um, the artistry seems to take second stage to the technical ramifications? I mean, um, you know, certainly we're a hundred plus years on from this renaissance. And, you know, I can remember when Director Moy at the 2007 Freedom Convention or conference that I attended talked about making the ultra high relief gold coin. That was, you know, as a harken back to the renaissance and he wanted to usher in a neo-renaissance. It just seems to me that we've gone so far, deviated so far away from where we were a century ago. Yeah. And the deviation, I think, has come in multiple little stages. To me, it began with adoption of the Lincoln Cent, which was President Roosevelt's idea. He thought it would be good, and he didn't really like the cent design that St. Gaudens had proposed, which later became the obverse of the eagle without the headdress, of course. And that opened the door for removing real creativity from the obverse designs because you could then fall back on political characters and historical care emblematic of liberty rather than placing a real liberty emblem that could be universally recognized. The closest we came to working beyond that was possibly, at least in the international view, the Kennedy half, only because of Kennedy's personality and other factors that really did not relate to his portrait per se, but to the way people reacted to his portrait. I guess his youth is a big factor then too. One of the things that's occurred is that, and I remember Director Moy discussing things about the extremely high relief eagle-sized piece. And what he wanted, actually I think you mentioned, was that he wanted that to be the end of the old designs and to begin a new set of creative 
purchased artistry on American circulating coinage. It didn't happen and hasn't happened because I think of a couple of factors. The largest was that even though the CCAC produced a detailed report for the director on what had to be done to make this accomplished, he didn't remain in office long enough to get the thing done. And the piece that has been missing consistently is the presence of a top-notch, independent, forceful art director, the U.S. Mint. The people who are the sculptor engravers are quite good at what they do, but they also are heavily invested in what they have done and what they are told to do. And they have very little real guidance. I know that uh, the current director has given the title to one of the uh, most senior people there. That's nice, but he does not come from the outside. He does not come from the international experience that we see elsewhere. And so when you look at even the commemorative coins, we find American designs being stodgy, static, bereft of a real feeling and emotion. There's just nothing to them except uh, cartoon drawings on metal. And even if you color them in with pretty colors, you still get cartoon drawings that are in color on metal. It does nothing to improve the artistry there because there isn't any to start with. They're illustrations. And that's one reason why there is, I think, some difficulty in doing anything beyond that because the illustration is easy. It's easy to visualize. It's easy to translate into strikeable pieces that require no particular great attention and generally don't get any kind of recognition among artists because there isn't much to recognize. They're commonplace. The Commission of Fine Arts after World War II changed a lot of its approach and de-emphasized coinage and metals in order to emphasize architecture, construction, and public design. And so the current Commission of Fine Arts has a substantial say in what happens on the designs, but they don't have any real impetus from their chairman or from anyone else to put the foot down and say, no, this is not a good design and we're not going to approve it. The same for the CCAC. When I was a member, it was not unusual for members to object to designs and in several cases have people go back and revisit everything. But that was quickly obviated when we realized that much of the flow of images and drawings and sketches that were produced were forced that way by schedule. And so it was the people who had to do with schedule in dealing with so-called stakeholders that forced designs into a simplistic and, shall we say, less thoughtful approach. I go back to the Fraser example. It was two years, almost, before he and McVeigh figured out what the buffalo nickel was supposed to look like. And the changes are relatively minor. But to the artist, they were important changes in expressing things. And McVeigh went along with that in understanding that this needed to be an artistic coin and we'll figure out how to produce it later.
The approach now is the opposite. We're going to produce the things, and whatever the artists give us, we'll sandpaper it down into something that we can strike quickly and cheaply and get out the door and make a profit. And as for circulating coinage, there you have the political interference of Congress in trying to say that, well, we can't take this person off the coin. They are somehow a sacred icon. It's wrong in two, two points. You shouldn't have sacred icons on coins unless they are icons that really represent the very best of all of America and the ideals of America, not just individuals who were American. It's a subtle difference, but one projects the image of our ideals from the Constitution, from the Declaration of Independence, from Lincoln's speeches, from Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats and speeches to the public, all the way through, uh, through Eisenhower's comments about the Cold War, and Ronald Reagan's comments, and others. And we don't have that because we have essentially politicized the image on the coin to be something which is static and almost religious figure on there. And if we have any national, quote, approach, religious approach toward that, it should be toward the Constitution and our very fundamental values. That's interesting. Your sort of resistance to reifying individual figures you know, that's problematic because of their individual histories and because they're individual people as opposed to dedicating coin designs to American ideals. Yeah, there are people, and every people, and I use the word people that way, every people has a problem. There are girlfriends, financial issues, failed businesses, everything else, questionable decisions about everything but behind every political figure in the country. And we as a nation tend to pay an awful lot of attention to those things, even though they have no real impact. The French go the other way. You say, do what you want, we'll put you on the coin anyway. <laughs> the designs of American coinage during the Renaissance of American coinage do seem to reflect particular ideals. It strikes me that there's a tension between America's commitment to democracy and sort of stated egalitarian principles and the empire that America was putting together around the time it predated these coins, but it was being put together as these coins were being designed and struck. Do you think that any of the people involved or did any of your research suggest that the public or any of the people involved in the production of the coins sort of noticed that, that irony or, or spoke to that tension at all? Or, or did people see sort of American democracy and empire as going hand in hand to some extent. From what I've read in the, of the era and in the biographies of various people from that era, including Roosevelt, the two were together. You really didn't separate them until much later. For example, the, the whole issue that Taft had to deal with, and Wilson to a lesser extent, of the so-called banana wars, we actively intervene in Central American politics and Central American governments on behalf of corporations. And you don't see anything about that. There are no commemoratives, there are no banana commemoratives. And that was taken as, okay, we can do that because of the Monroe Doctrine and because it's our manifest destiny to bring this 
to whatever. It's like the thing with the Gulf War, or after the Gulf War, bringing democracy to Iraq and not actually knowing what the hell you're doing. And so I don't think there was much in the way of separation between the two in the minds of anybody, or maybe later. Sure. It's interesting that you mentioned the Monroe Doctrine, because in 1923, I believe, there was the Monroe Doctrine commemorative coin, actually. So they commemorated the doctrine that you just alluded to, or you just mentioned, in the period that we're talking about. I'm also curious, because it seems to me that there's a similar tension that exists with the depiction of Native Americans on coins and the coins that were designed and issued during the Renaissance of American coinage. A bust of a Native American appears on the quarter and half eagle, and Liberty, personified as a white woman, appears with a Native American headdress on the obverse of the eagle. And these were struck into the 19, late 1920s and 1930s. Do you think that any of the people that we were just talking about, do you think that at the time, the tension between you know, again, the stated ideals of American democracy and our treatment of indigenous populations, the massacre at Wounded Knee was not all that long in the past when these designs were created and when these coins were first issued. Do you think that the issuing organizations and, and the people involved in issuing these coins and the public that received them, do you think that they noticed that tension either? Or again, was it sort of the idea of almost assimilating these figures into the kind of an, into an, uh, an American image or into an image of America that wasn't necessarily thinking about or didn't necessarily reflect on that recent experience? It's an interesting question because the public approach was that these images on U.S. currency or on U.S. coins were supposed to honor Native Americans. And an awful lot of people thought that a Cheyenne chief's headdress was a way of honoring somebody from Oglala Sioux, which the Sioux didn't think much of, but they weren't in a position to object. Around the time of the Buffalo Nickel, there are some letters from people involved in various processes at that time relating to the um, American Indian Monument that was supposed to be built where the Verrazano Bridge now abruptment still sits and some other things which really said that they were looking at these coins and the various Indian peace medals as a way of rewarding those who did not object to assimilation into what was considered normal American society at that time. That included religion, it included behavior, it included language. You notice that the um, Jim Thorpe's uh, comments about the Indian school in Pennsylvania that he attended, where he was forced to learn English. And so by making the Native Americans, shall we say, resident on various reservations, making them dependent on the American government for a lot of their livelihood. In one of the letters I recently read regarding the Indian Medal for Garfield, uh, there was a comment about uh, rewarding them for becoming farmers. And that that was a good thing for the Indians and for America. Where that went was really a way of saying, we're going to recognize these people for what we think they think we think they ought to be, and not what the reality was. 
and not with the understanding that much of the academic community and anthropological community actually had of these Native American tribes and their backgrounds. The um, mound culture in parts of Missouri and Illinois was considered to be a bunch of dirt piled up by crude natives who didn't know what they were doing. And nothing was really invested in investigating objectively what was going on, what these cultures did and how they rose and fell. And I think that the break with that kind of came with the, a little bit with the Sacagawea dollar design in that you were actually taking a real person and not trying to squeeze all sorts of tribal groups into one little image. I don't know if that's answered anything. But <laughs> I do appreciate that. And, and the, uh, the shout out to my hometown, St. Louis there. I've been to Cahokia Mounds as a school child, you know, we, we would go there. But I, I guess the, the thing that jumps out at me with this is American popular culture as a mechanism of myth-making Coinage is just a, another continuation of that because, you know, I, I think of um, Buffalo Bill Cody. That was, that was not rooted in reality so much as just this story of the Wild West, never mind that, you know, is dissociated from reality. And you have all these, you know, the minstrel shows as a cultural phenomenon, again, creating this myth. The coins were just another plank in the wall, if you will. Yeah, you go all the way back to uh, Parson Weems and his uh, stories of George Washington, and it runs all the way through that much of what we are taught is actually not real, never happened, and fortunately it did not happen. From uh, Daniel Boone to Buffalo Bill Cody to uh, Annie Oakley, you know, there were performers, and we do the same thing with simplified performing today. People look back on some of the old uh, rerun networks and they enjoy watching Leave it to Beaver and you know, the other old shows from the 50s and the 60s. Some of them even watch My Mother the Car. Andy Griffith's show. Yes, yes, or The Martian or whatever that was. And we build then a, essentially a commercial culture based on the simplifications, the things that creative people want to put in front of us as entertainment. And uh, what's the Ned Bunt line in all the uh, gunslingers and marshals of the Old West? I mean, all of that stuff is baloney. It's not even good baloney. But people have eaten it for so long that they've gotten to think of baloney as the real thing. And when people raise questions about that, they're usually viewed on as skeptical or as uh, people who want to kind of interfere with the fun, than as real reporting of, of history. And when it comes to the way we have dealt with various populations within the United States, it's generally done a disservice. The noble savage idea is absolute bunk. I mean, it, it's pure European bunk, no more than the North Europe wild man that's on some of their coinage and a lot of other myths that run around Europe too. I mean, somehow we're all basically influenced by that European almost deep need for heroes to be more than heroes and 
for our real heroes to be something greater than they are. If you look at the statements by Medal of Honor winners, uh, we treat them as heroes, and they are. But most of them don't view themselves as heroes. I was doing what I should do. I tried to save my comrades. I tried to prevent this. Uh, they were doing what they could to preserve themselves and their friends, their comrades, and their ideals. And they weren't looking at medals and awards. And to some extent, the artists in the Renaissance period of coinage were doing the same thing. They were looking at their designs as somewhat artistic ideals and hoping that other people would view them with a little more depth, even though they couldn't be presented in a deeper, creative vein. In some sense, it was almost impossible for the designs of a coin to capture the true complexity of history. So in a way, they default to the propaganda line, in a way. Right, right. So we, we quote, honor the American, Native American Indian by putting him on a nickel. And then we happily give each one of the chiefs who is visiting death ceremony a nickel and send them home with that in grateful thanks of the United States. What does that really say? It's just, it's five cents. We did nothing except to commandeer a portrait. And on the other side, commandeer the portrait of an animal we almost drove to extinction. And Fraser was well aware of this. His private papers indicate a great deal of concern about both. And since he was from, I think it was North Dakota, South Dakota, one of the Dakotas, I forget which one. He was certainly aware of conditions in the 1890s when he was growing up and uh, could see firsthand what was happening, something people in Washington couldn't. I remember reading, there's a piece in the Numismatist, or there was an exchange that was published in the Numismatist in, I want to say 1908, and in the, the first, late in the first decade of the 20th century. And they were essentially going back and forth about the artistic merits of the different designs. and. One of the critics of the designs, particularly the quarter and half eagles, said the Native American that appears on the obverse is, you know, a sickly looking specimen, not, you know, the strong Native American that you see on the reservations. And those comments struck me as, you know, not only are you essentializing what you think a certain group of people should look like, but it it, that comment also struck me as profoundly out of touch with reality. And like you pointed out, Fraser was aware of how terrible the abuse on the reservations and, and the conditions in the reservations sometimes were. So it's interesting that in his private papers, Frazier does talk about that tension. And then, of course, you also mentioned the, um, the fact that we almost hunted the buffalo to extinction and then featured them on a nickel in between 1913 and 1938, and then again in 2005. So I find your comments there very interesting, and you know, those definitely resonate with me to some extent. Over the course of your research, do you get a sense as to how the public received these designs? Do you think that this propaganda that we're talking about was that well-received by the public? Were the designs received warmly on the whole? I have two sets of receipt reactions from the public. One was the commercial public, who really objected to anything that was changed because it meant they had to look for something different. The bankers, the county house people, the exchange merchants, all that stuff. They didn't like the idea of changing the double eagle or the eagle or especially the two smaller coins they were harder to deal with. They didn't stack right, they uh, looked different, 
identifying counterfeits was harder, and the same for the silver. Now the dollar didn't get much recognition because it didn't really circulate much. The other small coins, in a commercial sense, were usually subject to objections. For example, the dime, when it was first released, was objected to uh, by AT&T in regards to their payphones. The coins had a bit of a fin on them, and uh, they claimed that this jammed their payphone mechanisms. And it wasn't until 1917 when Morgan did some touch-up work on the hubs and master guys that most of that went away, which is also why he made the changes then. Uh, the relief was also slightly high, and the Mint wanted to eventually get rid of that because it cut down dye life. So a really perfect 1916 dime is something of an anomaly. 17s and later are slightly different. But the other aspect is the public itself seemed to enjoy the novelty. Now, most of the public didn't get to see gold, so that really wasn't much of an issue. And the academic arguments in the numismatist back and forth about Pratt's design really didn't fall on the public's ears because the public didn't have half eagles most of the time. And quarter eagles were more used for jewelry and presents and gifts and that kind of thing than they were for circulating money. The silver coins, I think, were appreciated by the public, although the uh, quarter just didn't strike up well enough. It was just the design was just too small for the size of the quarter. And but the dime got a great deal of positive attention from the press and from letters from the public to Secretary of Treasury about how much they liked it because of the, the way the portrait of liberty seemed to float in the curved obverse field. The fascist was generally understood on the time for what it was as a symbol of Roman strength, protection, and half dollar was understood in much the same way as we do now. The um, coins, particularly the halves, had a little problem in mechanical devices at first. That was taken care of again in 1917. So they were accepted pretty well. The quarter was kind of the, the low one on the totem pole because it just didn't come across as attractive as the others. But that's just for that. It's not for anything about whether Liberty had an exposed breast or didn't polish her toenails or whatever. Yeah, that common story that I think a lot of people hear about the, the Standing Liberty Quarter is that Liberty's breast was covered in 1917 out of a concern for modesty, but in reality it had nothing to do with that. No, it had to do with the coming of the war, and when McNeil redesigned the quarter in January and February 1917, he was fully aware that America needed to be more protective rather than more outgoing. and rather than more classical. Rather. And so the chain mail and the difference of the shield, difference of other details in there were entirely appropriate with what he did. Of course, you have to remember that when the quarter came out in the beginning of 1917, just uh, early January 1917, Fraser was not expecting to see what he saw. He was expecting to see the design with the dolphins on it, from uh, August and September of 1916, because that's what he had 
redesigned at the request of Treasury and had been approved by Treasury for use. But the uh, Mint director basically circumvented that by uh, whatever means, I'm not sure what, because we don't have documentation on it, what he did. But he clearly suppressed that design in favor of the other one and then wouldn't let anybody really take charge of the standing liberty design to clean up the problems that it had on reduction. The 1917 is where Morgan, like on the other coins, came in and did a redesign to improve the clarity and striking ability of the coin. You've shattered a myth there in regards to why the standing liberty quarter design was changed. And it seems that the truth is a, a huge barometer for you. That is that is what you're after and that you seek out. Can you speak to some of the the processes that you've gone through to discover what myths have um, you know been part of the popular parlance but are not so, and uh, some of the myths that collectors have heard forever that really uh, are not true, and why it's important that we acknowledge what reality is in regards to those stories today. My basic approach is that the people involved should tell the story. Now, of course, for what we're dealing with, they're all dead, and the families generally frown on exhumation, especially because we can't find out anything more that way. So I have to go back and look at the historical documents that we have all across the spectrum, not limiting to just what's in the Mid Archive, but looking at what's in other archives like Library of Congress, personal papers. And local libraries often have collections of personal papers of people who don't merit Library of Congress, but who deposited their stuff with uh, the local library, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Several other places have holdings of people who were involved during their lifetimes in these events. And what I like to do is go through and collect everything that possibly might be related. So essentially it starts out with one document and then each name in that document produces another set of document trees to look for. So you look, you find A and then you look for B and C and D and E and E and F and each one of those has another cascade of leads. It's like, uh, just like investigating uh, a murder mystery and some of the designs that people have come up with are definitely murderous. But what I look for is where's the story? And almost inevitably, when you start putting these pieces together and digging into what is there, you come up with the participants telling you what happened, what they did, when they did it, how many pattern pieces of this and that were made, uh, who got them, how much they paid for them, whether somebody liked the design or not. I mean, if you look at the stuff even on the Morgan Dollar from 1878, you find that in the middle of 1878 in July, the mint director was telling Morgan that there were a bunch of things he didn't really like about the coin. This is after praising it to the high heavens, to the Secretary of Treasury and to members of Congress and to everybody else that it was so wonderful. Privately, he's telling Morgan, I don't like this, I don't like that. Teddy Roosevelt really didn't think much of his inaugural medal, the one that he commissioned 
St. Gaudens to do. He thought the portrait was scrawny and his wife didn't like it at all. And she didn't like the eagle. She thought it looked like it had leather pants on or feather pants on. That never became part of the public deal. But now from our perspective, we can look at all of this and say, okay, here's the public story. And here's what's on the press release from the Mint or, the, or this government place or that place. And here's what was really going on behind the scenes. And so we see how things are adjusted to present one set of views in public that might not be the accurate one later on. If you go to the World War II plastic experiments and alternate composition experiments, you see much the same thing. There are public releases, press releases, that say, well, we looked at these and uh, for various reasons, this and that. We didn't do this. But you look behind the scenes and you find out that the Mint Director and Secretary of Treasury or Assistant Secretary who worked with her had already decided in the spring of 1942 that plastic and stuff like that was not going to work. And so the whole exercise was actually a response to the request from the plastics industry members to have a go at it and try something. But they had already decided, and the uh, War Production Board had already informed them that there wasn't going to be enough resin to do any of this in plastic, and they would have to find a metal. So they went to the toy industry and found cheap steel with a good zinc plate. So in researching, I look for that. And what I start with is I make a quick review of extant literature. What did the various noble gods of the past of numismatics write? Even Wally Breen is a noble god. He's just down a few notches from the rest of them now. But what did they write? And I look at it quickly because I don't want to be biased by what they came up with. Like some of the stuff that is incredibly silly is in Breen. In his encyclopedia, he talks about the relief of the 1921 peace dollar being reduced to that on the 1922 by engraver George Morgan whacking a Galvano with a board. And actually, that's the kind of phrase that started my whole skeptical investigation of this stuff more than 20 years ago is because, to me, that was absolutely absurd. First, no artist is going to do that, to try to reduce relief on a metal plate, a galvano, by whacking it with a board. That's stupid. All you do is smash somebody's nose in. And I kept looking through him and then others, and what I saw eventually um, was a large pile of repetition without any real research or meaning. Green almost never has a footnote or an end note. He doesn't tell you where he got any information. And even though I found traces in the archives where he had occasionally left a footprint, in most instances, he didn't actually use any of the information. I found markers for Don Taxe, for the uh, Dorothy Pascal in the 50s, and some of that was used, some of it wasn't, but nobody from reading their public materials would ever know where they got the stuff, other than they said National Archives, which is absurd. There are trillions of documents there. So my approach was then to go back and look for the original materials. 
when I started the research for the Renaissance of American coinage, I was told by every one of the leading numismatists uh, living, and some who are now dead, that this information was gone. It had been discarded. Nobody knew. And here, look at Green, or look at Taxe, or look at this and that, or whatever. And I said to myself, that's a lot of stuff to be missing. Now, if it is missing, how did these people come up with these ideas? And if it's not missing, where is it? And so I started bugging the folks at archives in College Park, Maryland, where they have the bulk of the U.S. Mint archives. After spending some time going through various uh, boxes and volumes of things, I started to understand that much of this information actually existed. It was just not filed in a way that anybody could find it unless they went essentially page by page. And so that's what I started doing, is going through file boxes and volumes and folders there in College Park and in Philadelphia, gradually pulling out bits and pieces of information that with the research methods I use of basically extending broader and broader, you got to the point where you could start to see the story unveiled, you could start to see the people involved, and you could start to see what really was done and what happened, and not what somebody 50 years later had assumed had happened. And so that's really where all three of the Renaissance books came from, because my approach was not only to, let's say, go into 19.5 or 6 or 7 and make copies of the things relating to St. Gaudens, but to go into anything relating to any of the artists or people involved through the entire period, up to the 1920s. So what I was doing was collecting lots and lots of stuff that on first glance was extraneous, but it was all related to the same overview, the same general topic that said, we're changing the coinage designs, and so we're going to do something with that and then they started explaining what they were going to do or what had been done. For the St. Gaudens material, there were tremendous insights from his family lawyer. Now, this is stuff that was never in any of the books prior to this, not even the stuff by uh, Homer St. Gaudens, his son. And what I found is that the lawyer actually had a considerable influence on what the Mint did because apparently the mid officers and the director respected him more than they did St. Gordon's family. He was articulate, he was clear, he was careful. He didn't appear to have an emotional attachment like the family members did, or the other artists who had been, like Henry Herring, who had been part of St. Gordon's group of assistants. And so there's tremendous information there about how things were made. In fact, that's where the key is to how the high relief 19 Roman numeral pieces were made. Because that's not stated anywhere until you get deep into the mint documents. And this was stuff was right on the surface. So if anyone had actually gone in and looked in these volumes and in these boxes, they would have gradually seen this stuff pop out. And the only thing I can figure is that no one ever looked. So I guess I was the first one to actually look. 
and see what was there and not put it aside, but take it at face value and let the people who wrote the letters talk about what they were doing. Does that make any sense? No, I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. It's the same approach I use in all my books. And it's still the idea of let them tell the story, fill in only what you have to fill in, and try to keep personal opinion separate from the factual materials. And I, I try to do that. I, I'm not sure I'm successful all the time, but I try. Well, it would be very hard to be, to be able to separate those things so cleanly. That was our interview with Roger Burdett, or at least I should say the first part of our interview with Roger Burdett, author of the three-book series, Renaissance of American Coinage. We will have the next portion, the final portion of that discussion uh, with Roger in the next episode. Until then, though, we hope that you will find reason to subscribe, share the podcast, tell all your friends, neighbors, enemies. Perhaps uh, when you pass out Christmas cards, you will uh, include the link to <laughs> coinworld.com slash podcast or whatever that URL is. Uh, you know, Jeff, Coinworld podcast Christmas cards would have been great. We wouldn't know everyone to send them to, but we should uh, we should put together holiday cards and send them out. It's beginning um, to sound a lot like Christmas. All throughout the land. No. Anyway, we also hope that you all have an enjoyable holiday week, weekend, you know, and that your holidays are safe, that all your travels are safe, and that you enjoy the holiday. So, until next week, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to CoinWorld.com and click on Free Newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld Podcast was brought to you by the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.